Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This is the, the, the place that we have lovingly called This Is Not Church for no other reason than we just couldn't think of a better title. Right, John? Wow, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, put lot, I put a lot of thought into this name, like maybe like 30 seconds. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's, it right. shows in the, first, in the first episode we had when you couldn't even get it out. You couldn't say it. It was like, this is just, a, this is this. stop it. But I am uh, Nat Turney. I'm, I'm one of your hosts. As, as I like to remind you often, you get two hosts for the price of one. So double your pleasure, double your fun. My brother, John, is in the house. Say, yo, 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 what up, John? Yo, 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 what up, John? See, I promised you I'd change that up, but I actually kind of like hearing you try to say that. It's a lot of fun. So <laughs> I have to tell you that, that the, the guest that we have on the day, I'm just super, super excited about. I just can't tell you. I'm a little beside myself, actually, because I just finished reading her book last night, and I'm still turning through the stuff and still thinking about it, still kind of settling in my brain and in my heart. And I love it so much. But uh, let me introduce her to you and we'll get into a into a conversation that I hope will be awesome and life-giving. With us today, we have Carolyn Whitney Brown. Um, she has written a book called Flying, Falling, Catching, An Unlikely Story of Finding Freedom. Uh, this will be published uh, by Harper One, March of 2022. So it's coming out next month. This is a, a, a collaboration with, uh, with, with Henry Nowen some of his unfinished work that she was asked to finish up. And so it's, it's an amazing thing. Let me read you a little bit about her and then we're going to jump in and she can correct anything that I have mistaken. Mistaken? Oh my goodness. I just <laughs> turned that into a verb. Mistaken. All right, there we go. So she, uh, <laughs> all right, so she completed her BA at Victoria College in the University of Toronto and her MA and PhD at Brown University in Rhode Island. Oh my goodness. Uh, her doctoral thesis. I'm just always enamored of people who are so highly educated. You know what I'm saying? That just... Uh, me with my silly bachelor's degree, but my, uh, her doctoral thesis explored social and political meanings of childbirth stories in 16th and century, 16th and 17th century England, using a wide variety of texts, including drama, poetry, legal cases, midwifery manuals, diaries, theological discussions, homilies, and popular news. Her research interests continue to investigate how stories are told and which stories remain important in diverse and historical contexts. She lived at Larch Daybreak in Richmond Hill for seven years with her partner, Jeff, and their children. And since uh, she has completed projects for Larch Canada, Larch International, uh, founded in 1964 in France, Larch is an international federation of communities where people with and without intellectual disabilities live and work together. Her two commissioned door paintings can be seen at Dayspring Chapel of Larch Daybreak, and you can see them and read them in the creation uh, about their creation in a link we will provide at the end of the show. How's that? Um, I don't want to read HTTP. Anyway, um, <laughs> after leaving Larch, she coordinated national projects for the Canadian Council of Churches, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, and for the United Church of Canada. She's presently a fellow at University of Victoria's Center for Studies in Religion and Society, and she teaches religious studies for Saint Jerome's University at University of Waterloo. Uh, her publications include essays in Another Country, Feminist Perspectives on Renaissance Drama, Northern Lights, an anthology of, con of contemporary Christian writing in Canada, and Remembering Henry, and the forward to DLT, 1997, and 2013 editions of Henry Nowen's Road to Daybreak. All right, that is a lot. And I don't think we've actually scratched the surface of your accomplishments, but I tell you what, um, we are super, super happy that you have decided to join us today. So thank you and welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. And I should say too, by the time you actually drop this podcast, the book will be published. Yes. We're yeah. trying, we're going to actually coordinate the release of this podcast with the release date of your book so that when it comes yeah. out, they can, people can rush out and buy their copy. John and I were, um, were fortunate enough, um, to get an advanced copy so we could read it 
And the first thing I want to say about the book is if you are, if you're familiar with Henry Nouwen's work, this is something you have to have in your library. I just don't think you can miss this. If you're not familiar with Henry Nouwen's book, you, you have to have this in your library. Um, and it will send you down a rabbit trail of, of needing to read everything that the man ever wrote because he was a gifted writer. Um, but one thing that, uh, just to, just to, just to give you an idea of how enthralling and how, in, how, how, how engrossing the book was, I read this during the Super Bowl and had to look up from time to time to see the score. The Super Bowl people, I, I just couldn't put it down. And it's one, it's the first book in, gosh, in recent memory that I have, I have read straight through from beginning to end that I just, I wouldn't go to bed until I was done with it. So for that, thank you very, very much. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I'm so happy to hear that. So talk to us about the process, if you would have, because I know this, that had to have been a daunting task even to be asked to do this. Maybe you can give us some of the background of how that, how that came about. Sure. But, but do you want to start like you say you always do with my faith journey? <gasps> I, I oh, skipped right past it. Wow. I did. We want to get yeah. into this book so much. I'm yeah, let's quick, but I just, yes, no, don't be as, be as quick or as, as, as in depth as you want. I, I just wanted to start by saying that when I was seven or eight years old, I, I gave my life to Aslan. Oh, wow. I, I've never said that in public before. I just wanted to say that I, I knew that he was a lion in a children's book. I, I did know that, C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Of course, yes. If you remember Aslan after he's resurrected and he's playful and he's fun and he's bounding around in the sunshine and he just wants to stretch his body and play with the kids. And I just I just wanted to have a friend like that. Yes, so that that's sort of one of my early spiritual experiences. And I can fast forward through a whole lot of uh, leadership in a church youth group, uh, growing up in the United Church of Canada. If you grew up in a mainline church, your uh, most cruel version of teenage rebellion is to become evangelical and try to convert your very good-hearted, socially justice-conscious, prayerful parents and tell them that they need to accept Jesus. Oh, and no. that over and over. <laughs> I think drugs or alcohol would have been a whole lot easier than having an evangelical kid. <laughs> I met my husband in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And uh, by our late 20s, we were, we were really ready to go deeper into, into a spirituality that would undergird the kind of peacemaking and kind of community building we wanted to do in the world. And we did we did 30 days silent retreats um, with the Jesuits. Mm. And then we moved to L'Arche Daybreak. And that's where we met Henry. Mm. And in a way, our spiritual paths kind of coincide with Henry's. He was moving out of academia. We were moving out of academia. We were both moving out of Ivy League academia. Yeah, He'd been at Daybreak for, I guess, uh, five years when we moved there. So in a way, we were both, we were, Henry and we were all discovering how to move our faith from our heads into our hearts in a different way. And moving to L'Arche was huge for that, of, of learning to pray and live and laugh with people with intellectual disabilities, the difficulty of that, the, just the pleasure of that. One of the things I'll carry forever was my friend Gord Henry, a beautiful guy with Down syndrome. And he would just say over and over to me, he'd say, open your heart. Mm. And I, I just took it as my mantra. You can never go wrong with that one. Right. Yeah, you know, awesome. Under any circumstance, if you say to yourself, open your heart, mm. it'll, it'll work. 
So I just want to say that, you know, how Henry's faith journey and ours kind of came together at daybreak. Yeah. So you, uh, um, and then from there you moved on, right? So you're no longer at L'Arche and you're back in academia or you, are you doing other things as well? Yeah, no, we left in 97 and I did, as you were saying, projects. I coordinated the first ever national joint effort of the Canadian Council of Churches and the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Mm, okay. Uh, and then I worked for the United Church of Canada briefly and have done a, just a whole series of things. I teach online uh, a course on love and friendship mm, for okay. St. Jerome's University. That's amazing. So, so did, was it was it Henry Nowen's people that approached you? Was it the Henry Nowen Society, or is it who approached you about working on this project? Yeah, it was uh, Karen Pascal at okay. the um, Henry Nowen Legacy Trust, Henry Nowen Society. They're kind of one. Sure. Um, and she she asked if I would do something creative with this material. The trapeze material that Henry had left behind when he died had been sitting in the archives and and his um, very good friend Sue Mosteller had really wanted to write something herself, but she just wasn't finding how to do it. Yeah. And so the estate came to me and said, you know, you knew Henry, you're creative, you're a writer, I think it's something to do with this stuff. Wow. So I read through it and I could understand why it was difficult because it wasn't a whole book. It wasn't clearly enough for a book. And I couldn't write for Henry. Part of my own, I guess, being a scholar as my background was that I, I didn't want to mess with his words. I knew that as a reader, I would want, I would want to know what's Henry. Right. Like, you know, when you watch The Crown, you want to know, you know, did Prince Charles really fall off his horse playing polo? Like, you want to right, know right. what's real here and what's made up, right? So I thought readers would really want to know what's Henry here. So I left Henry's words intact, sometimes abbreviated, sometimes I, you know, shortened things. But sure. otherwise, I didn't even mess with his syntax or grammar. Um, I left all that intact, and I tried to frame the story of his his fascination with this trapeze troupe, and we should explain to listeners yeah. what the book's yeah. actually about. So yeah, so the book explores um, Henry's relationship with this traveling troupe of trapeze artists. And oh my goodness, the, the themes that are covered in the book are multiple. I mean, they're a mirror. It's just, you could go so many different directions with this, but one of the, one of the places that I thought was so interesting was how how much Henry struggled with how to frame this story in a way that was useful and different and unique. And so we, and we could talk about that quite a bit. Um, but there was, it, it's so a little bit alarming, the subject matter that when John told me, I said, no, 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 you got that wrong. This must be about Henry's, you know, when he, when he went to L'Arche and when he left academia to go. And he's like, no, I'm pretty sure I read something about trapeze artists. And I'm like, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and I'm like, holy mackerel. But it's really funny. There's an, he gives an interview and he says, when he tells people, and, and I wish I could do it with Henry's Dutch accent, but he, <laughs> he says, when he tells people he's working on the trapeze, they think he says trapeze. Yes, yes. So like, yeah, that like makes the, much more sense. Like his Genesee diary and they say a trapeze. He goes, no, trapeze. No, trapeze. <laughs> yeah. So that, that in and of itself is amazing. I want to, let me ask you about, about this. And that, honestly, I, my brain is going a hundred different directions because I'm still reeling from the book. But, um, I had just, we had just interviewed another author who was asked to finish the work of a deceased author. Um, and this was Je uh, Jeff Chu coming in to finish Rachel Held Evans' book. 
And his literary choice was to try his very best. And she had left him much, with, much, with much more of a manuscript than I think you had with Henry. And that might have been one of the inform, one of the factors that influenced your choices. But um, he just tried his very best to write that book as she, had, as she would have written it. It's really good. It's really good. Rachel's voice really comes through. I think it's pretty seamless. I don't know when it's him and when it's her. Um, but one thing I really did appreciate about your approach to this book is I knew when it was Henry. Mm-hmm. And I knew when it was you. And rather than try to channel your in, your inner Henry now when you you let him speak for himself. And there is a there is a quality to the book because I as you said, you left things intact and left things there is a quality to the book that is I don't want to say unfinished because but but I think I think Henry would have had a tendency to go back and polish up a lot of the things he had written and maybe tweak a thing here and there. And but it really spoke to his level. Uh, just how much, how how enamored he was of these of these performers. That there was mm. this really childlike way that he wrote about it. Does, does, that, does yeah. that strike you the same way? Yeah, yeah. I, when I first read it, I could just hear him in every word. Just yeah. and, and of course, I I knew him, and I knew him speaking about the trapeze. And every time he talked about it, he would just light up. Yeah. He'd be just so excited. And yeah, childlike, playful. Yeah, uh, the words whimsical. he used about it. Yeah excitement. He just always was talking about his excitement and he wanted to communicate that. And so he, he said that he wanted to write differently. Yeah. And he and I had some conversations about that in his lifetime, but that he, that he wanted to write, you know, maybe a novel. He wanted to write creative nonfiction. He wanted this book to be different. I, I, I was struck by, in, in some of the opening parts of the book, when, when, when he speaks about going to, um, to read, to read books about writing about yeah. the level of humility it takes for a guy of his level of accomplishment who's written by this time dozens of books and he's just, he's got notoriety and all this stuff. And, and he's still, he's still realizing he doesn't know as much about his craft as he, as he would like to, that he still wanted to learn how to do something differently. I thought that was amazing. Yeah. And the whole book's about how he's always reaching out to something new. Yeah. He's, yeah. He, he just is always ready to start his life over again in some exciting way. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with you. I mean, just the sheer joy that comes through his what when he writes about the the trapeze artist, and uh, I mean, it's from like the minute one of him going and seeing them perform, it's just like you get. Then we get to go on this journey. This, um, for lack of a better description, this almost is like this love affair of this connection with these people. I mean, he truly loved these people. I mean, and love what they were doing and love what they, what they brought out in him. The other part of it though is just, I, I, I love the, the juxtaposition between the, what, the, what you're writing and then you connect it to the, to the parts that he, that he wrote. I, I'm like Nat. I mean, I'm, there's so many, there's so much stuff going on in my head about this book. I'd, I'd love. So he did some of this in audio, right? He, he recorded himself, right? So some of the stuff that you're writing from is hearing like audio of him. Right? Yeah, he, he had his secretary transcribe it. Oh, okay. So, um, um, in fact, do you want? I, I thought it'd be really fun to read a couple. Yeah. A bit about yeah, yeah. Henry first, because he he dictates a tape and it's practically incoherent. Um, <laughs> That's because what I he's to so say. excited. He's just, <laughs> it, it, you can just yeah. hear his words tumbling over each other. And one of the things that grabs him so much is is the way that circuit the trapeze troupe is with each other, their relationships. Mm-hmm. And he says. 
I, I realized from the very beginning that this group has to be really well together. And I saw that they enjoyed it. They really had fun doing it. And there was a kind of excitement in them that became very contagious for me. It was kind of a, a wow, you know, and I must confess that when I saw them, they seemed to be in a way like gods. So far, I wouldn't even dare to come close to them. I had this emotional response to these people. These people are so far above me in their talent or their giftedness. They are such great artists, and who am I? A, a little tiny guy wanting to get to know them. It seemed impossible for me to even imagine knowing these people personally. I, I realized how strong that feeling was. It was like, awesome, awesome. And, and then he says, so I went to the show and saw it again. And I began, you know, watching all the other acts. But as soon as those flying Rodleys came on, I got all excited again. The whole way they walked right in there. And they climbed up to the top of the tent and made these enormous jumps. And the music and their whole style, they're smiling at each other. And the fun that they had and their timing and the whole thing, I, I couldn't believe they were doing it. Mm. See, see, all of that, just the, just the, like, I love that, that, the way you said the words tumbling out. It's like almost you just you just like like you just can't contain the joy, you know. And yeah. I, I love the I love the you know, I love the story and even just of his first meeting with them where he kind of forces himself to go meet them. You know, mm -hmm. it reminds me of being, you know, like at a concert or something like that and and and, yeah. and suddenly having the audacity to like walk backstage and see if you might maybe say hi to the person that you just saw. And you know, there's that sense of vulnerability and um I just, I just, I don't know, to, to, to imagine him being that, that way. Um, and he I, says it, over and over again that he feels like a teenager, right? Yeah, it takes yeah. him back to being an infatuated teenager. He feels yeah, like he should go back he to his room and there are posters on the wall and there'd be, you know, like, yeah. there's this, I, I just, I don't know, I can't get over how cool that is, you know? I could, I definitely get the feeling, because of the way he wrote, that you almost feel like he, and I believe he did this in some points, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly. Like he literally left the performance, went and then wrote about what he just saw. He, he, it was so important to him to get across that he couldn't wait a minute to then verbalize or write down what he just saw, how it affected him. And it's yeah. just, it definitely comes across in his writing. And a lot of, you know, I think, I think, again, I, I, I I'm trying to remember correctly. Uh, if it was part that you wrote or part that he wrote about how this would be so different than anything else that he'd written, right? Because a lot yeah. of stuff he writes is like super introspective. It's about your, your spiritual journey. It's like an inward journey. And this is so different than you know everything else that we have read of from Henry and uh, what we expect to read when we read something from Henry, right? Yeah, and he really wanted it to be. He wanted yeah. to write differently. In fact, I was really fascinated. It's in the book when I came across the outline that he writes, which is quite a bit like his previous books with yeah, you know, right, movements yeah, yeah, yeah. from career to vocation. You know, right, and he, right. he lays out a really what would be a very, very good book and he just doesn't write, doesn't want to write it. Yeah, I remember reading that part of the book and I read through I, I, the, I read the part about the outline. I'm like, yes, that's perfect. Yes, do that, you know? Yeah. And then him having the, the, the self-awareness to say, no, no, that would almost be too easy. Uh, it would be too formulaic. And it would have been a great book. 100%. I guarantee it would have been a great book. But that, but at this point in his life, it seemed like that wasn't where he was interested. Uh, he wasn't interested in just writing a great book. He wanted to write a different book. Um, I think he wanted his readers to have his experience. Yeah. He didn't want to explain it. He wanted us to have the pleasure uh, as readers of figuring out for ourselves, what does the 
what does this experience mean? What does this imagery mean? What does this, what's in this story for us? I think he wanted the readers to get the pleasure of, you know, like Jesus' parables, as he says, you know, Jesus spoke in parables, great spiritual masters tell stories. He he wants to push himself to tell a story. and, and, And he even says that, he realizes telling a story that's open-ended is a bit scary for him. Yeah. And that that's because uh, there's parts in that book where I, just, I can just sense that coming out of him. And one of my favorite books that, that Henry wrote was about the prodigal son. Mm. And, uh, and so him using that frame of reference, you know, to, and, and, he, and, he, and you mentioned also in the book that he's talking about all, how these stories don't have to hit you over the head. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing because he didn't say this, but they don't have to come out with the gospel and hit you. A good, a good story will carry the gospel with it. And I thought yeah. that was a very profound thing to say that I could just tell a story here and, and, and let people pull out of it what they need to pull out of it. And I think he's exactly right. It, it, it would have been very easy to draw those spiritual parallels because as soon as I got my head around the trapeze thing, I did start to go to places I thought would make sense to me. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, there's obviously there's teamwork and there's trust issues and there's, yeah. there's risk and there's danger and there's creativity. And I could see all of those. Okay. I can see how that could be, you know, a Henry Nowen kind of book. And for him to resist the urge to go back into the comfortable and, and hold off, I, I'm, I'm only a little saddened to, you know, because he departed us too soon. I would yeah. have really loved to read what he would have written in the next 20 years. Oh yeah, because he absolutely. was not a man who was who was content to just go. Well, no, this is how I write, and this is what I'll do, and all right, I'll turn out twenty more books like this. No, he would have always been pushing the envelope. I think, yeah, in some way or other. So, and that was important. Just just to say, it was important to me to honor that. That that I don't know where he would have gone with it, and that was another reason I couldn't have written it for him because I don't know where he would have gone with it. It, it, it would have gone somewhere different. So I, I realized pretty fast that my project was not to write the book Henry would have written, but to tell the story, like to tell the story of his story, to give a framework so he could tell his story. Well, and and again, I, I, this is gonna this is gonna seem like a like a Carolyn Whitney Brown love fest here, but I think you did that brilliantly. You know, yeah. and I, you don't need my affirmation or or anything, but um, but from my perspective, I, I just I don't know how you could have done it better. Um, it, it really is. I think it. I think it captured the spirit of Henry. I think it. It. It left us wanting more. Sadly, <laughs> from him, I'm like, oh man, I really wish there. You know, but it was. It did sort of um, satisfy that longing for something else from Henry Nowen. And I, I just. Mm-hmm. I just loved the. I loved your approach to it. Um, it was very creative. I love how you weave the story of, of even of of his of his illness and his heart attack. And I don't want to give him too much of the book away because you need to buy the book and go get it. And um, but the way that that it propels the story in a very unique way. I thought it kept mm. me moving where I've, I, and I have other books on my shelf that I have picked up and put down and picked up and put down and they're good, but they have not grabbed me in the way that this one did. They go, Oh, I just, I, I'm, I'm just going to read the next page. I have to read the, a little bit more. I think it's important to, to, to acknowledge that yeah, Henry Nowen's writing this book is great. Your writing this book is also great. Oh yeah. It's, uh, the it's parts incredible. of the book that are written by you pull us along on this story. Uh, I was just as eager to hear the next part that you were going to write because you you intertwine this story. And again, we don't want to give too much away, but the story of uh, the basically the last few days of, of Henry's life, right? Connecting that and then these backstories, right? That then, then it gets to Henry's writing. I was just as fascinated and just as 
I don't know what the right word. Um, I was definitely brought along on the story. Yeah. And I wanted to read your words as much as I wanted to read Henry's words. And that, that's, it was beautiful. That's, that's great. Because the book really is half-half. Yeah. And again, I, I, the, the knowing where you, where you come in and where he comes in, that was a brilliant move, I think. Because I really did. I, it was nice to know, hey, these are Henry's words. These are Carolyn's words. This is narrative from, yeah, that was, it was, it was easy to track along um, and know when I was reading, you know, who was, who was the writer. And my little scholarly hangover that, that there are really detailed notes so you can find out exactly. Yeah, where it all I came got down. to the end of the book. I'm, I'm reading it on a, on a, on an e-reader, right? So I'm flipping through uh, the page and I'm like, I'm, I'm 81% done. I'm 89% done, whatever it was. I got to the end and I still had all this, you know, I still had like 30 <laughs> pages of text left. I'm like, what's left? Maybe a really long epilogue. I was like super <laughs> kind of excited. And like, no, it's just pages of notes. But would, would, that just tells me again, your scholarly, approach to this is there's going to be footnotes or, or, or obviously the bibliography anyway so that that was it was obviously well researched um it also lends cre- uh, credibility to the parts that you recount um when you so did you actually have conversations then with the paramedic who was treating henry or or is this some things that you got no. from his notes or no this is uh no this is a great story i i just couldn't figure out so when henry he was in, on a sabbatical for, in 95 and 96 and he came back to daybreak and then he was, and then he had a um, commitment to go to Russia to do a film about his prodigal son thinking, standing in the museum in front of the actual giant painting in Russia. So he flew from Toronto to, to Amsterdam and went, um, went directly from an overnight flight to a hotel um, and he wasn't feeling good. And within an hour, he'd called down to the front desk and said, I need medical care. And the manager called, called, called emergency. And, and what I knew was that they had to take him out the window, which, which was sort of a legendary, I mean, of course, Henry larger than life. Of course, he had to be rescued out, out, out the window. window. Of, of course. course. <laughs> yeah. Everything, everything was, was bigger than life. Um, and, and, and truth is often stranger than fiction with Henry. Yes. <laughs> so I knew that. But when I actually started to write the book, I thought, well, wait a minute. Wouldn't it just, I mean, you're already having a heart attack. Wouldn't you die of anxiety yeah. if someone yanked you out a window? So <laughs> yeah. I, I tried to look up pictures on the internet of, you know, what do window rescues look like? And it, it looked terrifying. So then I started to think, who could tell me about this? And I, I did a little search around. And on LinkedIn, I came across this guy, Denny Walterkins, who uh, had written an article in English. So I knew he spoke English and he had trained paramedics in the 1990s. And so I just reached out to him in, through LinkedIn and he got really excited about the project. He went actually to Hilfersum, where, where Henry's hotel had been. He went to the hotel and looked at it. He tried to track down who the paramedics would have been, but of course by now it's 20 whatever years later. Yeah, um, but he but he sent me he put together for me a, a fifteen page document with absolutely every detail of what because he trained people to do exactly that kind of rescue what they would ask what they would check what their equipment was what order they would ask the questions how they would wrap the stretcher how they would move the person from their bed to the stretcher how they would strap him on um, how they would take him out the window that that, that the person goes out head first how they click in how they get taken down to the bottom, the exact team that comes that you need, two trucks arrive and you you end up with eight firefighters as well as the paramedics. You end up with this giant team, but they're all doing something and, you know, exactly what the medications would be. 
and any, you know, when they put the oxygen mask on, like every detail, along with pictures of what they would have worn, and even a picture of what the actual truck must have been, because there only was one in Hilversum in the 1990s. So, you know, a picture of what it would have been. So he gave me this incredible amount of detail that I needed to make sense of this strange, strange happening. And so, and he really tried to find out who it was, but he didn't. And so I named, but I knew Henry, even if he were in terrible pain, he would have gotten to know the name of the person looking after him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so the person needed a name. The person needed to be a person. So I named them Denny and thanks to this guy I've never met who, who without whom the book just wouldn't have happened the same way. Um, in fact, Denny got so into it that he wrote me back and he said that he was feeling kind of sad that he hadn't been able to look after Henry better. Oh, no. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it was so oh, touching. Oh, man. Well, I, I loved, you know, and it, it, it's, it's not a difficult parallel then to draw between, you know, Henry's love affair with the trapeze and, you know, the heights and all of this stuff and, you know, almost his final act is going out a window, you know, Absolutely. And, you know, and having that, that, that sense of exhilaration and fear kind of commingling and, you know, just, I don't know. I just, I, obviously we're saddened and I am still, I, I was telling, I think I told John, I told somebody, I read, I read that, I read, I read half of that through tears, you know, just because mm-hmm. the whole time, you know, I, I know the story and I know that, that, that Henry died soon after and, there's still a sense, you know, and it's very, very strange to have that connection with an author that I've never met, I'll never meet in this life. And, but I still had that sense of like, I knew him, you know, yeah. and, I, and I feel like if I'd met him, we, we would have liked each other, you know? And yeah. so there's this sense of loss over this. And so I'm reading this beautiful account of, of, you know, which is also sort of whimsical and funny. And, you know, there's a strange parallel between him and the trapeze artist. And I'm, I don't know. I just that that's part of the beauty of this is all are all the little connections that you've made between the real events and between what he had written. And I don't know. I just I just I'm still I'm still thinking about it. It's really, really well done. So Mm. but I was going to ask you a question about um, I love one of the one of the things that Henry said was that um, in this book that he said, um, so many of us uh, uh, had, I think I wrote it down, just these most profound shifts in life come via interruption. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'd, I wonder if you'd give some, give some clarity to that, you know, because his life seemed to be a series of, of interruptions moving him from one place to another. And I'm just curious what your, what your thoughts are. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, some of his interruptions are well-planned, you know, when he decided to go live with the Trappists for six months in a way that interrupted his teaching, but that was well-planned. Or when he went to Latin America to live with, with, uh, and learn Spanish and live with people who are poor. And that was, you know, those were sort of interruptions to his teaching, but he, they were very carefully planned. And then there were the interruptions that, uh, that, that really burst into his life and, and in the book, he thinks back over some of those, especially when he um, has a, it was hit by a van. He writes about it in a book called um, Beyond the Mirror. Mm, yeah. And it really brings his life to a standstill for a bit, but he feels sort of strangely safe and even a little relieved in a way to have everything come to a halt. Yeah. It's quite interesting. Um, and then other interruptions just were completely unexpected and devastating, like his mother's death very suddenly, or his um, his, his big emotional break uh, a year or so after he moved to Daybreak. And that those were just, just disrupted his life. They were just huge disruptions in his life. So 
in this book, the uh, you, the um, the interruption that he that he isn't going to make it to Russia to this film at that moment it has a sort of combination of of um, uh, disappointment and a kind of relief that that everything gets to sort of stop for a bit. Um, that, that he really again that sort of openness of Henry to life. Yeah, well, even his the interruption if it you know of of picking up and going to Selma. And deciding, yeah. no, 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 I need to be there. Like, I, I, I can't be, you know, and I, one, one of the things that I appreciate about Henry um, and, and people like him are their, I don't know, they're just their, their unwillingness to sit on the sidelines, you know, and mm. in, a, in, a, in a, there's a brand of Christianity that, that, that has put itself right in the crosshairs of social justice and, and put itself, you know, in, in vulnerable and risk-taking ways in, in place. And then there's, and, I, and we need more of that. And so I've always, I've always admired him for, you know, obviously his departure to go to daybreak was when I was, uh, I was serving on a, on a, on a spiritual retreat years and years ago in this little Catholic retreat center. And I was perusing their little library. And so I'm perusing through the library. And of course I recognized the name Henry Nowen, but I don't think I ever read any books by him. I had a couple of his on my shelf and well, I'll get around to him, you know, and I, and I found that little book called Adam. And I picked it up and I was like, well, that's interesting. I could probably get through this in the next little bit. And so I sat down on a chair in between sessions we were doing and I didn't get up until I'd finished it, basically. And okay. I just had this profound sense that that um, that Henry was a man of conviction, that he was a man of integrity, you know, and that there and that in the story of him walking away from what he walked away from, sort of at the height of his notoriety and fame and saying, nah, I'm not going to get stuck in this hamster wheel forever. I'm going to go do something different. And even that came with a great cost, you know, now. Um, mm -hmm. But I still think that, that that willingness to put himself out there and try something new is, is sort of a hallmark of, of his life, wouldn't you say? I mean... Yeah, and it's, it's utter delight, too, in like just how much fun he had discovering new communities yeah. of... Of, of getting to know the people who he met by going to Selma. Yeah. You know, as a firstborn white Dutch privileged priest, he was studying <laughs> in Kansas at the right. Ranger Clinic. But, uh, you know, to, to actually go on that march when Martin Luther King Jr. asked for church leaders to come and support them, mm -hmm. that he decided to just go. And his just excitement of meeting people, of, of eating different food, hearing new songs for him. And his excitement moving to L'Arche of discovering people with disabilities, discovering something about himself, discovering them. It's just this open-hearted welcome uh, of new experiences. I don't know if you remember when, and, and also when he went to the AIDS conferences right, in the 90s. Right. Yeah, which yeah. was a big step for him. It was hard. He said yes. He said no. He said yes. He said no. He was scared to go. Um and and that too just opened up. I mean, he'd already had friends with AIDS and supported people with AIDS, but to go to speak to a big gathering was was a big step for him. And it it, it really did draw on the kind of confidence of trying something new that he'd been experiencing through through the Rodleys, through the Flying Rodleys, which is the name of the trapeze troop. If we right. said that yet, <laughs> just in case you're wondering, the, the Flying Rodleys. <laughs> Um, yeah. Wow. That's, and then going to Martin Luther King's funeral, you know, I love that. I love the stories. I, I do love the way that he was always so sort of candid. It's, I always had the sense that, that, um, there wasn't a lot of guile 
in Henry Nowen. I mean, he was who he was and he owned that. And so he didn't say, I immediately went off to, no, he, he argued with himself a bit. He had to talk himself into it. But I love that. Um, was it, was it going to the funeral where he sort of woke up the middle of the night and he's like, nope, I have to go. Or was that, or was that the March on Selma? I think that was the March on Selma. Okay. I knew one of those he had, he had kind of decided he talked himself out of going. And then in the middle of the night, he's like, nope. Nope, I have to go and sort of gotten this little BW. That was the March in summer, wasn't it? Yeah, that's the March. But, but the funeral was the same thing. Yeah, he, yeah. he wasn't going to go, and then he just realized that he was getting more and more bitter inside and angry and just churning, and he just wasn't with the right people to process that, and that he wanted to go be with the people there. Yeah. Well, isn't that just? I mean, isn't that that's the human side of him that we that we need because it 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 affirms our inner struggles too. Like, um, because I know that, you know, I have the same type of, uh, issues when I'm trying to make decisions that are, that I consider tough and hard and I do, and I battle with myself and I, and I, and I, you know, inevitably more often than not, I, I think I pick the right choice, but I think the other part of what is really interesting in the story is that, yeah, he makes the right choices and they're good choices, but there is still, there's a cost almost, right. Of, of being able to put yourself out like that. I mean, we see that with Daybreak, right? He goes to Daybreak and he, and he, and he's, in, you know, entering this new part of his life. But it's during that time that he has this mental breakdown, right? And uh, so he's, he's chosen to go on to this higher, better, whatever you want to call it, different part of his life. A right choice, I think, from what I can see. But in our right, even in our right choices, sometimes there's a cost on us, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and it, it's, it's so refreshing, I guess, to know that it happens to other people. You know, I, I, Nat and I mm. had been talking to other people about, you know, a lot of times we feel like we get into these, these situations and we feel like we're the only ones that this ever happens to. And then you see someone who is so, we, we look at as so spiritually in tune and so connected. And he also had these struggles and these internal battles and these, um, these, these demons that he had to deal with, right? Yeah, and that for Henry, I think the confirmation that moving to Larche was a good thing wasn't because it was easy. It's because right. it it was where he could grow. It was where ultimately he could find a home, but it wasn't easy. Right, yeah. And as you read in the book, it wasn't easy for anybody. <laughs> right, right. I get, well, any, any, any sort of naive sense that this was going to be, you know, just like anything else, I'm sure it was, was gone in an instant, you know, and I... I love, but I do love, there's a, there's such a self-effacing style yeah. to Henry now. And there's all this, there's so much self-awareness, you know, he knows who he is and what his limitations yeah. are. And he thinks he's funny. Like he finds the humor of himself and is willing to tell you that. Like, like when he tries out the trapeze and, you know, <laughs> yeah. hangs kind of limply from it and falls into the net and then sees himself later on film and just says, oh, I looked so pathetic. <laughs> But then, but then the flying Rodleys, you know, start laughing when he yeah, starts complaining about how he looked, and then he then he laughs too. And I mean, he he loved telling a story on himself. Yeah, um, but even yeah. their exasperation, though, of like even something silly like him tracking mud into their trailers after they <laughs> told him a hundred times, "Come on, man!" But he's always just so excited to get where he's going. He's not. There's no malice in it. Like we couldn't no. be mad at him. I mean, he, yeah, okay, we were annoyed, but. Um, <laughs> But, but even, and I remember reading about when he went to Larsh and, you know, I don't, I'm not sure he understood how much physical labor would be involved in the things that, and this is a guy coming out of academia, hasn't worked a yeah. real job for years and years. Yeah. And all of a sudden he's doing all of this manual labor and he's spending all this time with Adam and he's, you know, but he's, but there's no, 
I don't know. There's no, there's no, there's no attempt at self-aggrandizement. It's just, I, it is yeah. who I am and this is who I am. And I just, that, that plays, I don't know, just lends authenticity and credibility to the things that he says because he's so open about, about his own insecurities and his own foibles. But, um, yeah. And, and yeah. you know, one of the things that really came to me writing this book was that Henry never wanted to be on a pedestal. Yeah. You know, in, in the way that there's so much discussion now, of, you know, who gets put on a pedestal and, and or st- even whether a statue should be on a pedestal, you know. Right. And when Henry found himself, I mean, of course, he had a certain pride and, you know, and, and loved being respected, loved his work. But, but, but moments when he was put on a pedestal were not healthy times for him. That was not yeah. a healthy thing for him. And in this book, a pedestal is what you jump off of, like, you know, a trapeze <laughs> act. Right. Standing around, staying on a pedestal, preening yourself would look really stupid. Well, <laughs> <laughs> dressed in some garish costume and you're all, yeah, all that's that stuff. Right. All that stuff posing, that he just, yeah. yeah, like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Also, you're hardly ever on a pedestal alone in the trapeze troupe. Like, right. that really struck me that, that Henry, when he came to Daybreak, he started to try to travel with people from the community. He would travel with Thelis and Wendy to do skits with him. He would travel with Bill Van Buren and hand Bill the microphone and say, tell, you know, tell this big audience your favorite joke. He would travel with, with Gord Henry, who I was talking about before, who would tell the whole audience to open their hearts. Like he would travel with someone else. Like he wouldn't be on his pedestal alone. And so in a way, this book feels to me really right that he and I are sharing the cover. We wrote it together. Like that's kind of what he was what he's trying to say about the whole trapeze act is you don't do it alone. Yeah. And we're all trying to fly and we're all trying to catch each other. And that's our freedom is, is not being alone is doing this together and knowing we're going to fall. Well, yeah, that's, that's another interesting part of the book, right? There's the flying, catching, falling, but within, within that, that time after their practice, right. Where they would all sit down and like kind of go over what they did right and what they did wrong. So obviously a part of their journey is falling. And learning from yeah. falling, yeah. and I think Henry in, in this is also learning from falling. That as 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 you make mistakes, as opposed to beating yourself up, calling each other names, telling you each other how dumb you are, how about instead we we come together and and talk about why we did what we did, how we did it, and come up with a constructive positive outlook and that seems to be something that also drew him to them yeah and 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 you put it aside because you can't you can't go back up and do the next performance if you're carrying all this anxiety or guilt or shame or recrimination can't happen yeah there's so much there's so much mental headspace that has to be right right you have to have a short memory in terms of what just went wrong right again it's it's so interesting because when when i sort of first heard about the theme of the book i'd my immediate sense was, I don't know about that. And now that, and then it took a few minutes. Now I'm just thinking it could go a hundred ways. And maybe that was, maybe that was Henry's main issue was like, honestly, this could go here or here. I'm I'm seeing spiritual parallels. I'm seeing um, parallels with teamwork and how, and maybe even like family dynamics. And I mean, there's just, there's just so many applications to this seemingly absurd parallel between trapeze artists and, and, you know, and a, and a Dutch priest that you just go, yeah, but what about this? You know, and one of the things that struck me very much, John and I are very active 
within certain circles, the, the buzzword has become deconstruction lately, right? So we're deconstructing our faith. We're, we're, all that really means for us is we're asking the hard questions. You know, I'm, I'm looking, I'm just, I'm willing to dismantle what I think I believe piece by piece and try to sift out what's authentic and get rid of what's not, you know? But what struck me was, uh, Henry's been doing this for, had been doing this for <laughs> 30 years. He's, a lot of what he's doing is, is questioning and, and, and giving us, a framework in which to ask questions. And I, I, I want to read a quote that I, I grabbed from the book real quick and see if I can get you to comment on it. But this actually speaks to exactly where John and I are at these days. It said, uh, the circus tent and the church standing a few hundred feet apart are two completely separate worlds. For me, however, they are very connected, but no one seems to see this. Aren't they both trying to lift up the human spirit and help people look beyond the boundaries of their daily lives? And aren't they both at the same time in constant peril of becoming places of, for lifeless routines that have lost their vitality and transcending power. And I was like, <sighs> I went to try and highlight it, but the reader I was using wouldn't let me copy anything because <laughs> it's all copyrighted. But I'm like, I'll find a screenshot. It. But that, that, what a, what a, what a beautiful parallel for people like John and I who were like, listen, sometimes inside of the institutional church, that's what I see. I see lifeless routine. Um, I see it robbed of its vitality just because we're going through the motions in it. And there was that sense in which the, the, the circus act, if it did not keep evolving and changing, could become the same kind of thing. In a sense, deconstruction, what you're talking about, it's maybe like composting more. Mm. That you keep turning it over and turning it over and, you know, what's really nutritious and, and can carry on to... You know, it sort of goes down the for the next for the next round, yeah, <laughs> right. and everything else. Hopefully, yeah, and the other stuff will break. It'll break down in a way. It'll break down and become poo. <laughs> Wait a minute, yeah. Yeah, 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 it might smell kind of foul as you do it. You know, there's something there. Composting. I, I, one of the um, one of the chapters I really like is I pulled out of Henry's unpublished journal from before he met the trapeze artists in chapter eight when he's channel flipping. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, between yeah. Tina Turner. Yeah. Yeah, concert in Birmingham. <laughs> yeah, and and and, a, and Bach, some um, Saint Matthew Passion, and, right? <laughs> and and one is like super sexual, and the and the, and the and the crowd is in a trance, and she and David Bowie are just you know clutching each other's you know singing "It's Only Love," and then he flips back to Bach, and and the solemn people are singing about you know Christ's death and the beauty of His love for humankind, and. Uh, and uh, and is watching it with his dad on TV, channel flipping back and forth, and, and I just I just loved that because it's it's um we're all att- attracted both ways. Eh? Yeah. We're attracted to a to a long deep tradition that's actually very nurturing that that our ans- you know that brought our ancestors you know where we are too, whatever our tradition is. Yeah, and we're also really energized by what's new, what we haven't thought of, what has just a whole lot of new energy and life in it. And and we go back and forth between these things in our lives of wanting to go deeper, wanting to go new. Yeah. I I think you're exactly right. And uh the that I, I still get a kick out of thinking about him flipping the channels back and forth between those two seemingly so it's like completely juxtaposed, right? It's like <laughs> Tina Turner of all things and um but it, yeah, it's it's a it's it's an interesting um, contrast, you know. Um, I, I just love that. I want to talk a little bit more about your part, your, your writing part. So yeah, yeah, for sure. So Henry was very. I think he was looking at writing this as a, what do we call it, creative nonfiction, right? Is what he was looking at doing. Uh, so my question, I guess, for you is the part that you write. 
there had to be parts in here that you are you are assuming, right? You're 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 putting um, by knowing Henry and knowing probably what would have happened in these moments. How much of what you wrote would have been considered creative nonfiction, or would have have been almost just fiction? Um, because um, I, I obviously you don't have uh, you didn't have access to these conversations between Henry and the the paramedic, right? Um, so some of that is um, yeah yeah it, it has to be kind of fictionalized, but I think done in a really a really good way. If that if if that is what you did, that, I guess that's my question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, of course I had to make up that Henry. <laughs> Henry didn't write about his death. Yeah, slacker. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe he's just. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why he didn't. <laughs> Well, I was actually, I was actually a little surprised because I didn't, I yeah. didn't know the story as well as I did. And so in, in my, in my recollection of events, which is obviously poor at this point, but I, first of all, two things happened. And this is a, this is a, um, a, to me, it's a telling of how, how well written the book is. I know Henry dies and the whole time I'm thinking he might make it. Yeah. Even though I know. You know what I mean? I'm still I'm obviously he still. What are you doing yeah. to me? How, and then obviously we know only a few more days, but but there was how you managed to create tension. This is always to me the hallmark of really really good writing is managing to create tension in a story whose outcome we already know. And if you can still do that, I know he didn't survive. You know, much longer after. I, actually, in my in my recollection, he passed away in the ho- he didn't make it out of the hotel room. I don't know why I thought that, but it still managed to pull me along and have me going. Okay, well, maybe he's okay. I know he's not okay, but the writing is. I mean, of course, actually, I shouldn't say it like that. I know he's okay, um, but I but I still was. You know what I'm saying? And anyway, I just I just meant that as a compliment to the way that that part of the story was written so well that I'm still I'm still rooting for him to to pull through. You know. Yeah, and, and to go back to John's question, part of the difficulty of writing the book was that I didn't dare just go wild and invent Henry. Right. Right. I couldn't. I couldn't make him do what I knew he didn't do. I couldn't. I couldn't. Like, it, it, I, I'm not a fiction writer. Uh, this was the first time I'd ever, like Henry, it was the first time I'd ever tried to write creative nonfiction. <laughs> it was incredibly fun. Yeah. But it also was constrained. I had to really stay tightly within what I knew to be true of Henry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, then I, but then within that, I had to invent right. conversations a bit. I had to, sometimes I had notes, like when he and his friends Frank and um, Ron are, are at the trapeze together, and I have notes from their conversation, but then I had to parcel it out to them. And fortunately, they're both still alive, so I could actually check out with them. Uh, you know, is it, does this seem, you know, does this yeah. seem right? Mm-hmm. Right, did I get close here, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And one of the most moving things for me was when with some fear and trembling, I sent the manuscript off to his brother, Laurent. Mm. Just wondering, because I, you know, invented Henry. I'd yeah. invented a character named Henry who gets taken out a window and thinks things and, and, and you know, looks back over his life in a way I have, you know, uh, I'm not saying that ever happened that way. Yeah. And so I was very moved when Laurent responded that, you know, that it felt very accurate to Henry's hopes and dreams and even Henry's despair. Mm. And then he just said, you brought Henry very close to me again. Right. He says that yeah. in his endorsement yeah, I read that. to the book. And I... Yeah, so that was a big affirmation that, yeah, uh, uh, chunks of it are, are fiction. I made it up. I took some guesses. I made it fun to read. Mm-hmm. Um, but, that, but that there's something about it that's true. I would say that yeah, you you you've taken some 
you've made some guesses, but you've made some very educated guesses here. And uh, so the style of your writing that meshes with what he wrote, I totally believe that that's what Henry was thinking at that time. It, it, It makes sense. It flows with with what Henry wrote. Um, there's no like, I don't ever feel like I'm jarred out of the conversation. Like the, like at this moment, I'm like, okay, I don't know if Henry would say this or not. I never, and this through the whole book, I've never felt like this isn't, this doesn't make sense. This is logically, I think this is, this is, this is the kind of conversation Henry would be having with himself as, as he's being put into this gurney, as he's being, you know, getting ready to be lifted out this window. Um, it all flows so well and, uh, it's, it, it goes to your expertise and your willingness to learn everything you can about Henry as you're writing this. I mean, it, it, it really does. Yeah. And in a way, of course, the book has a character named Henry, right? I'm not right. claiming that's really Henry, but as I say early on too, Henry crafted himself into a character in his own writing all the time. Right. <laughs> that's you know, true. He, he, he's not pouring everything about his life out. He was always choosing, what am I going to say? What am I not going to say? What you know, how to craft this story to be helpful to readers, to speak to readers, to mm-hmm. celebrate our shared humanity, you know, the yeah. things that he did in his writing. And there were very few things, that, I mean, and there were a few things about which he was pretty guarded. And one of those things that, that, that I think strikes me as, as, as something he held close to, the, to his vest was his sexuality. Yeah. Um, and yeah. he's, I mean, uh, I don't think it was a secret if it was a secret, it wasn't a very well, but it wasn't something that he openly discussed, or I don't know that he ever wrote much about it. No, and he, he didn't come out in any way publicly in his lifetime. So is that something that, to did you ever have conversations with him about that? Was that a, a, a choice that he made for any particular reason, or was it just that, I don't know, I'm just curious if, if that was something he struggled with. Well, remember the 1990s? Remember the don't ask, don't tell era? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, John and I are Right, that, yeah. And you know, I, when I look back at Henry's life and the choices in front of him at that time, he was, as, as you see in the book, he was under some pressure to come out yeah. because it would be such a role model uh, for, for uh, his gay friends. And he could see that, but he also could see that it might make all his writing of vulnerability or pain or, or shame about one thing. Yeah, I could see and, that. And that and that then he would be a lot less helpful to the wide range of people that he was. And the other thing is Henry was pretty thin skinned. I mean, when I think about his life, there there's, you know, a fair bit of discussion among his friends about whether staying in the closet killed him in a way that that the stress, the anxiety of over a lifetime of feeling you know, shame and hiding such a big part of what he was, whether that was part of his heart giving out relatively young. On the other hand, I just, I don't see that coming out would have been better for his heart. I'm not sure he could have, I don't know how he would have withstood the um, barrage of opinions that would have landed on him. Can you imagine? So I don't, I don't think there, I, I think either way there was. Well, it was uh, a, yeah, it's a, in some ways in, in the nineties, especially had, had Henry, lived into the 2020s, I think there would have been a new, there, there might have been more opportunity for him to to be more open about that and find a more accepting audience. I, and I, I feel like we're shifting a little bit as a, as a culture and a, as a church to be more affirming, yeah. um, although not nearly enough. But Yeah. And because he didn't talk about his sexuality in his life, I, as I was writing the book, I had to make a real decision. Yeah. 
as to whether whether that was part of the book. And then I thought, well, this whole book is about his discovering his body in a different way, thinking about embodiment in a different way. If I don't mention it, any astute reader will think, didn't well, he yeah. even think that this might be about his sexuality? And of course right. it was. He wrote about that himself just in passing, saying that, you know, in different ways, he just keeps mentioning, just in passing, not with detail, that what it's awakening in his own adolescent body experience that he has to wrestle with sexuality. We all know what adolescence is. Absolutely, yeah. There's pretty broad there in his book that, uh, that, that that's part of, I think, why he didn't manage to finish the book because part of what was maturing and, and happening inside of himself was a wrestling with that. But so much more, too. That's not the heart of the book. I mean, there's so many things that he's figuring out. Right, right. And... and and just so just so you know, I mean, I thought that was handled deftly. I thought that was handled um, tasteful. You know what I mean? It, it to the point where it did not become like, oh my gosh, this is all about. No, it was just you know almost like if you had maybe if you're especially if you're a first time reader of anything by now and you might just assume that's well everyone that's just that, that's just Henry Nowen. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have come as any sort of revelation. Um, and I think it was a I don't know maybe I'm wrong about this, but but it. It may have been something he didn't talk about openly a bunch, but I, but I don't know that it was a, I don't know that. I mean, it was a secret, but not a maybe maybe not a very well kept secret. Like I don't know, maybe outside of certain circles, I don't know. But the the pressure he felt to come out from his gay friends and from his other from from other, I, I can understand that that would have been a great deal of pressure for him to want to be an ally and to want to and then also to not know how to suffer the slings and arrows of all that would come at him after that. Yeah, and just just what his ministry was. Yeah. That, that it would compromise what oh, what he was about in the world, the, the yeah. kind of big-hearted openness. Yeah, and, and you know and that, and that like you said at that time it, that it would have just become that would be all that everyone would talk about. It would it, everything else that he had done would no longer matter because it was just this. This would well, that, it would all be framed in reference to that, right? And now all your, like you said, all the, all the, all the writing about vulnerability and all that stuff. But oh, okay, now yeah. we get it. You were just, and there was way more to it than that, right? So, yeah, I was just curious. Um, that, that I thought again, I thought that was handled well. Um, I just, I don't know. I don't have enough good things to say about this book. By the way, I'm running out of <laughs> adjectives and superlatives to say how much I really, really enjoyed it. I have not been this moved by a book in a good long time. And I read a lot of books. And so I feel like a little bit of a fanboy right now, just going, ah, it was so oh, good. <laughs> I'm so excited. I just hope it shoots to the, I just hope you sell a million copies and it goes, you know, gangbusters crazy. Um, for all 10 of our listeners, we'll make sure they all buy a copy. That's right. Um, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, cho- you chose well to come on a podcast with, with, with all 12 of our listeners, but I'm kidding. There's at least 20. Well, I've told all five of my friends too. So it's really, it's really good to go out there. Uh, yeah. I actually, when I, when I get the book, cause yeah. I will buy the book, um, cause I need to have a copy of it on my shelf and then I will, I will, you know, I'll go crazy with my highlighter. Um, I actually think I, I, I still pastor. And so I'm, I'm thinking there's some, there's some things in there for a sermon series. That I think that would be really fun to, to, to make some of those, to connect some of those dots that one of them, one of my favorite parts of the whole book. Um, and I was talking to my friend Todd again, Hey Todd, you're in the, you're in the podcast, in two podcasts today, Todd. Um, we were sitting at my, I own a coffee shop. And so we're sitting in my coffee shop and we're having, you know, we're catching up on some things and I'm telling about this book and I'm rambling like I am now. And I said, but 
I loved the imagery of the of the flyer and the catcher, and that really got me. Um, and so, the the whole point being that the, the the flyer doesn't do anything to be caught, and the worst thing the flyer can do is try to be caught. The catcher's job is to catch. And so this picture of trust that comes in, uh, Brennan Manning wrote about it in Ruthless Trust, and Henry's written about it. Since, I mean, this, but this whole picture of trust took on a new image for me of, uh, it's not my responsibility to be caught. Um, it's my responsibility to trust the catcher. And that was, and is still profound. It's still kind of, like I said, it's, it's kind of working its way through my head and my heart to, to, to see where it goes. But what a beautiful picture and what a challenge to do, you know, it's not just, it's one thing to say, it's another thing to do it. But yeah, I just love that. Yeah. I, one of the things he wrote that I put actually was so beautiful that I put it as the epigraph for the book was when he, well, two things. He said, when I saw the flying rodleys for the very first time, it looked like everything that's important in life. I saw it together in one act. And then he says, the 10 minutes that followed the act somehow gave me a glimpse of a world that had eluded me so far, a world of discipline and freedom, diversity and harmony, risk and safety, individuality and community, and most of all, flying and catching. Mm. And I just love how he just brings it all together there with his yeah. huge excitement that just everything is there. Yeah, it's uh, remarkable. I mean, really, 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 really good. I'm, I'm, I'm out of release, John. It's like seventeen really is good. Um, I and I, I I appreciate you 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 coming on and, and talking to us about this. It's been really really <laughs> stop it with the reallys, Nat. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it has been very very. Um, <laughs> it's been great. I, I appreciate your 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 willingness to come on and talk about this. Um, yeah, I don't even know what to say at this point. I'm just rambling. So, John, why don't you uh, why don't you uh, help us close out and sound less like we don't know what we're doing? So I get to say all the really, really. <laughs> I feel really, really privileged to be on your podcast. It's been really, really fun. My yes. first podcast. It's been really, really great. I am, I am so <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! You're a natural. This is not that you should go on podcasts every week. This should be something you do. You just jump right in, and uh, it's really, really good. I appreciate that. <laughs> I hope I don't say that word again all day. I mean, I just have to like exclude it from the vocabulary. No, no, there's another. No, 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 I won't be able to. But it it has been a pleasure. I thank you for being. Hey, we're we're honored that you came on. Um, Loved the book. Obviously, we We gushed over. You know, gushed like crazy over it. Um, It it does release March the seventh or eighth. Eighth, yeah, the eighth. So March, March 8th. the eighth. Um, if you go to your favorite booksellers online or in, you know, if you can find a brick and mortar store, please do. Do but, it. Oh, I do know it. It's harder yeah, and harder yeah. these days to find one. But this is a, this is this is a book that's worth having on your shelf. I think you need a physical copy so you can go through it and highlight and underline. And um, I think you'll do what I'm going to do and probably read it a couple times. Um, and, yeah. and in the physical copy, you get on the back cover a fantastic photo of Henry lying horizontally in the arms of the flying Rodleys, just beaming from oh. ear to ear. It's okay, fantastic. well, that's, see, now I <laughs> was even remotely on the fence before. It's it's in my pre-order basket now. I think it's going to be a huge, I think it's going to be a great book. I think it's going to go gangbusters, and I hope it really does. But um, yeah, I've, I've run out of superlatives to, to say about it. I'm really in love with it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I just... I have to mirror what Nat says and just thank you for coming on and talking to us about this, this awesome book that's going to, 
people are going to love it. I, I don't, I don't see how, how they're not. Yeah. Um, I mean, Nat and I both went into this with really no idea what the book was going to be about. I mean, it's it just like Nat said, it just seems so like, like the connection wasn't, didn't make sense at the beginning. And by the end of the book, you're like, how could it have not made sense? I don't understand <laughs> yeah. how, how I even doubted it at any moment. Yeah. It's such, such a good book and yeah. everyone is going to just enjoy it and you're going to want to buy it. Trust me. And you're a copy love for it. your friends. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.